Anyway, um, we're going to take a look at um, the word if. Because as you study, especially the book of Colossians, it's got a couple little ifs in there. And you never want to take those to mean in order, a condition that you have to perform in order to get salvation. Salvation is always free. All you do for that is just believe on Christ. If there's more than that, you know it's talking about more than that. We looked at the other day about, we're talking about here in the book of Hebrews, that lettuce. Yeah, we talked about lettuce, you know, eat your greens. And about realizing it's talking to believers. But here, I want you to look at this in Hebrews in chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And he makes a statement there in verse 1. Therefore we ought to give uh, the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time uh, we should let them slip. So there's something that we ought and we have heard and we should. Uh, this is to believers, uh, not the lost people. And so he makes a statement, lest we let them slip. And so there's something that we study as we go through the book of Hebrews. There's just so many things that are good in the book of Hebrews. But it says, for if, see that word? It's a big word. If the word spoken by angels is steadfast in every transgression and disobedience received, a just recompense and award, what do you think we're going to get? If under the law God dealt with them who broke his word, what in the world do you think is going to happen to those under grace? Well, we're under grace. It doesn't matter. You know, there's no consequences. Yeah, I think you might want to take another look at that. But when he makes a statement here, about these angels and so forth. And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. But he says, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast. And of course, I'm always curious and wondering what you know, it could mean. But take your Bible real quick. Hold your place here now because we're always going to come back to Hebrews. But look there in the book of um, Galatians in chapter 3. Galatians in chapter 3. And you'll notice that there's a uh, verse here that says a little bit of the same thing. And you notice in verse 19, because it's referring to the law and those that were under the law and how they received the law. So it says in verse 19, wherefore then serveth the law? And what's the purpose of it? Because before this, he talks about the promise that God made to Abraham. And so the, the law cannot disannul the promise. So therefore, what did it serve? What was the purpose of it? It was added because of transgression. It was added to the promise, but you don't add the law to grace. You don't add those together. It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator. So once again, you see that phrase mentioned, ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator, as though that's how God gave the law and the things in the Old Testament. But how God did it, he's saying that in the New Testament, you know, Christ came and he's better than the angels. And so you had the law, now you have grace. Which one you think is the best? Well, it's simple. It's easy to understand. Take your Bible and also turn to the uh, book of um, well, Acts chapter 7, you'll notice that he's got a, a little bit of similarity here to this also because he refers to it. Acts chapter 7. Acts in chapter 7. And look there in verse 53. Chapter 7 and verse 53. He didn't preach a hard sermon, Stephen did. And then he kind of hit him right between the eyes. You can see how he was very, he was tiptoeing to the tithers. And he says there in verse, let's just, verse 51, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, 
you do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your father did, so do you. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. So, however they received, whether the word angel there in your Schofield Reference Bible, it will have, um, you know, uh, chapter 1, it will have in the notes about the angels, and uh, you can read and study that. But whether it came because of the prophets that God had, these messengers, as sometimes the word angel can refer to messengers. Sometimes it refers to, I believe, a uh, pre-manifestation of uh, Jesus Christ in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, and it's reference really to Christ himself, I believe. But now, notice that the next one we have here, in uh, the second one, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation. So as you read this and you see the word escape, now certain words will key up in my mind and I'll think, well now, there's another verse and maybe it's starting off this way and it ends this way and so everything in between, I know it's what it's talking about. So it kind of gives me a clue. But look what he says there. He says in this same verse, in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed on us by them that heard him. So take your Bible and look there in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. The book of Hebrews and chapter 12. But you see there in verse 25, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth. See, this is similar to chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2 and 3. He said, For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape, talking to believers, if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. So I believe it's a warning to God's children about this so great salvation. And so the Hebrew Christians are not to turn back to Judaism, in a sense going back to the temple and back under the law and back to sacrifice and all those things. You, you don't need that anymore. And so I believe that you put all these things together, it makes an awful lot of sense. Uh, look at the very next statement. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6. Now, it's just understood that if you see a house, somebody built it. I mean, normally, I mean, the way normal people would think. You're driving down the highway and you see a house. Do you think somebody built it or it built itself? Somebody built the house. Now, of course, we have this whole world and we think, well, it made itself. No, somebody built it. And so um, when you read here in chapter 3, we're not talking about the foundation. You know, Christ is our foundation. Now, when you look in chapter 6 and verse 1, not laying again the foundation. But we're talking about now building on the foundation. After you've trusted Christ as your Savior, it is the will of God that you take heed how you build upon the foundation, which ties in with 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, and about the hay, wood, and stubble, and the gold, silver, and the precious stones, and Christ is the foundation, no other foundation can be laid that, that one. And so there's going to be a judgment seat of Christ, and as it says in the book of Jude, building up yourselves in your most holy faith. So now he compares Christ with Moses, and under the law, Moses like had his house, and he was trying to build a nation, and uh, uh, it didn't turn out so good. 
the flesh never does. And on the law, it just doesn't work too good because of the weakness, not of the law, but of the people. And so people don't always respond. But he's going through and showing how much better Christ is than Moses. So you look there in uh, chapter 3 and verse 2. Who was faithful, referring to Christ, to him that appointed him as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. See, there's always this contrast, this comparison about here's Jesus and here's Moses. And the Jewish people didn't know Jesus is better than Moses. And what he had and what he did was better than anything under the law. He was a better high priest and he made a better sacrifice. And what you get as a result of it is better, better, better. And so he says here in verse 3, For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. If a man builds a house, which is the greater, the house or the man that built it? Because the house didn't build itself. It's only a, you know, results of a man that had the skills to build a house. Well, Jesus also is building something. And whenever he says this in verse 4, for every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. So whatever you and I see, the world itself, and it'll mention that in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, the invisible things and so on. But what we have is who created everything. So then the creator is greater than the creation, right? But now in the book of Romans in chapter 1, they had a problem. They worshiped the creation instead of the creator. Just the opposite. So always remember, you are not greater than your creator. Worship the one who created you. But he made the statement here in verse 5. We're talking about building a house now. We're not talking about salvation. Salvation is your foundation. Remember in the book of Matthew in chapter 7 where he says, The wise man built his house upon the, um, the rock. The rock is the foundation. And the house you're building... And so we have this piece of land God's given to us. When you trust Christ as Savior, all right, now you've got time, and God wants you to build on it. But the foundation is not, you know, the house. But he's talking about building, and we're going to build, and whose house you are, if you let the Lord build you upon this foundation. And then as he says, Moses as a servant, but Jesus was a son. Now, which one is greater, the servant or our son? The son is greater. Jesus is always being compared and with the angels, which we've shown, and we'll go through, and it'll show you about sacrifices and all that stuff. But notice what he says here in verse 5. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which should be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast of confidence and so forth. We are built because of our faith. And so your faith in the Lord is that confidence you have in what God says you believe. So it's one thing to be saved. It's another thing to be built after you're saved. So you're to study the Word of God. And the sin that does so easily beset in the New Testament, I should say in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, I believe is a sin of unbelief. Because as you read chapter 3, you read chapter 4, it's that sin of unbelief. Some did not go into the promised land because of unbelief. But some did. Not everybody. And so there's some who will go to maturity, and there'll be some people who will never mature. They will never grow in the Lord. They'll come, they sit, soak and sour, and they never grow in the Lord. That's all they ever do. 
But there'll be some who will come along and they'll hear it and believe it. And then man, they just start taking off like a rocket and just growing. So he says here in verse 6, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end, till you reach your maturity. Where are you going? What's he trying to do? So that's why you read the sixth chapter. And we're going to go on to perfection, go on to maturity. And it mentions the same thing in the book of James in chapter 1 when he talks about, Brother, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation. He says, and if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who will give to every man liberally and he will not chide you or mock you or make fun of you. And uh, it says, ask in faith, believing, and so on. Because that's how you grow in the Lord. And God wants us to grow. So now these following verses are talking about don't harden your heart, but to be tender-hearted. Tender-hearted, teachable, sensitive, so that God can build you. Build you nice and strong as a Christian ought to be. Because in chapter 7, it will talk about the rest. Rest, 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 rest. And we'll look at that in just a second. But he says, if you will hear his voice in verse 7, harden not your heart, that is in the provocation. That means when the children of Israel provoked the Lord in the wilderness. And they did provoke him in the temptations in the wilderness. Now, I want you to hold your place right here and just very quickly look over there in the Psalms 78. The 78th Psalm. 78th Psalm. This whole Psalm is, is really an awesome Psalm, but there's a few things mentioned down through here because he kept asking the question, you know, can God furnish you know, a table in the wilderness? How's God going to feed all those people? How would you like to have about two million people to feed every day? Ooh. But anyway, as you go down through here, he talks about all the things that he did, and they hardened their heart. They kept hardening their heart. So look at verse 39. For he remembered that they were but flesh. When that passeth away, cometh not again. That's talking about us. You know, we're only here as a vapor, and then we're gone. Now, he's still around. He ain't going anywhere. God's still here. God's God. But we come and go. Just think, 100 years ago, you weren't here. In about five years from now, some of us ain't going to be here. <laughs> okay, 20, 30. Anyway, he says in verse 40, How often did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Now remember this. If you limit the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, working in your life, you limit yourself. You limit yourself and you limit your ministry when you limit God. So they limited what they had and what they could have done for the Lord because they were hard-hearted and it says they... Remember not. See there in verse 42? They remembered not. They remembered not. So God is saying there's things that you should do to keep remembering. Anyway, go back here to the book of Hebrews. So you go down through here and there's a bunch of these little if, if, if. Because it's talking about, it's conditional. You don't harden your heart because of the deceitfulness of sin and so forth. And what's going to happen to you? Now look here in chapter 4. In chapter 4... And we'll read from verse 1 down to verse 8. Because all of this kind of goes together, but there's about, you know, five of these uh, ifs in here. But look in verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. So we're not talking about salvation, how to go to heaven, but 
not believing the promises of God. And this is what all this is talking about. So he says here in verse 2, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with works. No, faith. In them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the work were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place on the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, Again, he limited a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day. But you can have fun with that. I mean, you can sit down here and it'll just blow your little mind. God created the heavens and the earth. Rested on the seventh day, right? He rested from his creation. So there is a rest there. You see, we're not involved in creating anything in this world. God's already created it. The work's done. We have just entered into his wonderful rest. And we're supposed to freely enjoy all things that God has made for us. So we can do that. God's rest in the plan of salvation. Because, you see, when he talks about the foundations of the world and so on, and going all the way back there in the last part of verse 3, well, also, you read over in the book of 1 Peter, he talks about... Christ was slain from the foundations of the world. In other words, the plan of salvation was already designed before God ever made the first man. That's hard for us to understand, but it's true. Slain from the foundations of the world. But anyway, so there is a rest that we have in the work that Christ did. Christ did the work, and we simply accept what he did for us. I'm not working for my salvation because I have entered into that rest. You see, he did the work, and I do the resting. I accept what he did for me, and I have eternal life. And look what I get just because of my little faith. My little faith that I put in. Look at the benefits of what I got for that. Also, God has a rest in Canaan. Uh, you know, when he brought those people out of Egypt and across the Red Sea and, uh, well, into the wilderness. See, some people believe that that's a type of salvation through the Red Sea and into the wilderness that uh, rebellious stage we all go through, and everybody's going their own way, and God's having to spank us a little bit and teach us how to walk and how to talk and how to discipline ourselves. But there's a land of promise I got for you. Well, some people will never get into the land of Canaan. That's not heaven. That's a place of victory. That's where they fought their battles, and that's where God promised them victory over their enemies if they would do what? Trust them. They sent in some spies, and the spies come back and says. We're just like grasshoppers in their sight. I mean, they're huge. They're giants. And so everybody was scared. So they told the people. Next thing you know, you got ten of the spies that went in, convinced all the people. And next thing you know, the only ones after all these years, uh, Joshua and Caleb got to go into the promised land. Isn't that a shame? It didn't have to be that way. They had already got to the place called Kadesh Barnea. They had 11 days journey. And instead, they had to spend 40 years in the wilderness until they all died off. And the next generation, he took them into the promised land. See, that's why it is with some Christians. They'll never get into the land of promise where they reach the state of maturity where they can learn as a spiritual Christian to learn how to rest in the Lord. 
And so there's people who their Christian life all boils down to is my wisdom, my abilities, my talents, and it's whatever I can handle. And they don't have a clue about how to trust the Lord for whatever God wants to do in their life. And they're always trying to manipulate. That's why they fall apart. That's why they're, they're not held together. There's nothing there to, you know, they're weak in the Lord. They can't handle spiritual responsibilities. So there's all these different rests that are mentioned down through here. But he does tell us in chapter 4 there about let us labor that we might enter into his rest. In other words, there's work that you do in order to get to the place where you can rest in the Lord. Because it's just like kids coming to college. There's so much they don't know. But they got to study and memorize and all that. And that's work. But they're working hard like that because someday they want to be able to rest and be able to take God at his word and whatever God says. And they can rest in God's leadership and God's provision and God's peace and everything in life and enjoy life. But if they don't, they'll be a, a, a nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof. They'll not understand life. But there is a rest. And so the thing about this rest based upon the word of God. So you see there in chapter 4, look at verse 12. Verse 12, for the word of God is quick. We're alive and sharp and powerful than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing of son of the soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is the discern of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's the power of the word of God. So you learn the word of God because you see, you can't grow without the word of God. And that's why he told them, he says, you're dull of hearing. In other words, you don't understand, like you don't want to know. And because of that, you don't grow. So this is why you find these verses here in Hebrews in chapter 5 when he makes the statement in verse 12. For when for the time you ought to be what? Teachers. Could they? No. Has there been enough time that God knows you could have been? Because they did not prepare themselves. And a lot of people will never do it because, well, I'm, I just can't do it. I just don't know how. Why haven't you prepared yourself? Every Christian should know how to teach the Word of God. You say, well, I don't know how to teach the Word of God. You ought to. Why do some people can do it and you can't do it? You say, well, I just can't do it. Yes, you can. You chose not to. You chose not to prepare. Any way you want to cut it, we can learn how to do whatever we want to do. It's just, sometimes we don't want to do it. And so I, I can't do that. Yes, you can. You chose not to. But whatever you choose not to do because of not trusting and believing God, it's going to cost you in the long run. Because how shall we, believers, escape if we neglect so great a salvation and then God give us the time in which we live of how much we could have done for the Lord? So anyway, I think I got off of my notes. I'm not even sure where I'm at. But look in chapter 6. <laughs> chapter 6, look in verse 3. And this will we do if God permits if God permits. And then he explains what he says. You don't have to lay again the foundation of salvation, which is mentioned down there in verse 1. Let us go on to maturity, building up yourself, being strong, listen to what God says, obeying the Lord. And this will we do if God permits. But he will not permit you to grow if you do not take him at his word. You cannot grow without trusting God's word. So as you read and study the word of God, you can grow. If you don't do it, you're not going to listen. You're not going to learn. You're not going to have the light. And that's why in chapter 6 when he says, And if they shall fall away, 
to renew them again into repentance. So in my notes, I wrote this down. And this will we do if God permits. Well, in that verse 6, if they shall fall away, God can't do this. Can't do what? He can't save you again. You see, you can't lose your salvation because if you could lose it, God can't save you again. Because it means that the payment Christ made was not sufficient and therefore you committed a sin that cost you your salvation. And Christ isn't coming back to make any more sacrifice. There is no more sacrifice for sins. Hebrews chapter 10. So you can't get saved and lose your salvation. I've said this before, I'll say it again. If a man could lose his salvation, there ought to be at least one story in the Bible that says so. Or one verse in the Bible that says it. Don't you think? I mean, that's a critical thing. If you can lose your salvation, there ought to be a verse in the Bible that says you can lose it. And if a man could lose it and get saved again, there ought to be a verse in the Bible or an illustration where somebody lost it and got it back. Find it. Why can't you find it? It ain't in there. Why do you think God in chapter 12 of Hebrews can chasten his children? What's he chastening them for? Being good or being disobedient? Probably disobedient. Scourgeth every one of his sons. Now, chastening can include teaching and instruction in a lot of different areas, but scourging, that don't sound good to me. But anyway, the next thing down here at the bottom of your page, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11. If, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Remember that all the priests had to come from the tribe of Levi and the Aaron priesthood because he was the brother of Moses and he got that honor. But the problem was they would die. And then another one had to take his place. And then he'd die. And then another one had to take his place. And then he'd die. But Jesus came down and was a high priest, and he made a sacrifice, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but himself. And so he goes back to heaven. So Jesus is not a high priest on the earth. He's a high priest there. Because, you see, there's no sacrifice for him to make down here. There's no kind of sacrifice Jesus needs to make anymore. That's why they don't need to go back to the temple and make any more sacrifices. And so he's trying to educate them a little bit. So look down here also in verse 19. Verse 19 is a very important verse because it really shows you something. If you have to be perfect to go to heaven, and you do, for the law made nothing perfect. You ever hear people, you've got to keep the law, keep the law. Well, what does it say right there? The law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did. So there is something better than the law. I wonder what it was. 